This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Don't you understand? It doesn't have to be like this. You have to help. It's gotten out of control. It's too big. It is time to launch a new war against the evil of lies, deceit, and darkness and go all out to win the victory of truth and transparency and light. Sure, go ahead. Believe everything you see on television, everything you read in the newspaper. Go ahead. Get your history out of the Encyclopedia Britannica. Yeah, that's right. Oswald killed Kennedy. Yeah, sure he did. Man, you are living in Disneyland. Live from Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Welcome. Here we go. Not sure which microphone I'm using here. Is this the one? Am I on? Hello, friends. Now that doesn't sound like the right one. Tim, is that it? Well, it sounds real hollow for some reason. I'm not sure if you're hearing me out there, uh, ladies and gentlemen, but uh, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Richard Serrett with you. And of course, today we uh, commemorated Remembrance Day. You know, I don't have my poppy on me. I must have uh, worn... Uh, I must have gone through, what are we doing here, Tim? Find me a microphone, any microphone. My kingdom for a microphone. Ah, the one the one without a windsock. All right, three microphones in the room, and I had to pick the first two that didn't work. Then we spill the water. Excellent start to the program. All right. Why don't we just start the music again and um, uh, <laughs> start it from the top, shall we? All right. Uh, Remembrance Day. I was just uh, mentioning that I had, um, uh, I purchased, uh, you know, a, a a poppy every day because you know they've got to do something about these poppies with the straight pin uh, because they just keep uh, flying off in the wind and then I look down and it's no longer on my jacket or my sweater so I go back back into the convenience store and I buy another one happy to do so but maybe they should think about uh, putting on some sort of a safety pin but that would be too easy right uh, anyway of course today we uh, we um, we remember the uh, the sacrifice but it's it's very easy to put on the poppy and forget about the rest, the sacrifice. Because it seems to me we are too easy, uh, too, too willing uh, to give up all of those things piecemeal, bit by bit, that were fought for by those who have uh, laid down their lives uh, war after war after war. I'm talking about civil rights. And what we're seeing is this gradual erosion. We're giving it away. We're giving it all back. All those things that they fought for and died for. We, we put the poppy on and then we go about our daily lives. Uh, and it's really sad. It's, it's, uh, it's unfortunate. However, today uh, we, um, we thank veterans everywhere and we remember those who are no longer with us. My father was a, um, a gunner, a tank gunner in the Second World War with uh, an old cavalry outfit 
that became a, um, an armored, uh, an artillery uh, division, Fort Gary Horse out of uh, Winnipeg, Manitoba. And I believe, if I remember correctly, they were the first Canadian armored division into Germany during the Second World War. My father, of course, survived uh, the war and passed away in 1986. Didn't talk a lot about the war. Uh, unless I sort of pressed him on it. And then sort of grudgingly, he would tell me details. Uh, obviously, a lot of um, difficult moments, and it was difficult for him to, to remember. But he would from time to time, for my benefit, I suppose. So thank you, veterans everywhere. Uh, we're actually um, looking at another anniversary today. Well, two days ago, November 9th, 1966, according to some... Paul McCartney died. So, in fact, Paul McCartney never wrote Maybe I'm Amazed, which is my favorite McCartney song. He never formed the band Wings. He never clashed with Yoko Ono, became a vegetarian, fathered any of his children. And when Queen Elizabeth knighted him in 1997, she was actually knighting someone else. As I say, this is because conspiracy-minded uh, Beatlemaniacs say McCartney secretly died in 1966 and the other Beatles covered up his death. They even hired someone who had the same jovial personality. But the guilt, so the theory goes, eventually got to the other members of the band and they began hiding clues in their music. We're about to unravel the mystery that Paul is dead with one of my favorite guests on the program, a native Tennessean with a passion for rock and roll, a published author with Simon & Schuster, and a rock and roll investigator extraordinaire, R. Gary Patterson's works portray many fascinating events that helped shape musical history from Robert Johnson through current groups making a place for themselves among rock and roll's standing legends. In 1996, Patterson released his first book entitled the Walrus Was Paul, which looked at this very rumor, this legend, Paul is dead. And immediately the book became highly sought after. Beetlefest catalog proclaimed The Walrus Was Paul as one of the, its best-selling titles of the year. And due to the instant success of the book, Patterson found himself as a highly sought after radio personality. And he's a great friend of this program. Our Gary Patterson, welcome once again to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? I'm doing great, Richard. How are you? I'm very well. A little wet. I spilled my water. <laughs> what? Who else can I be on the radio with? And they start with sort of a paraphrase from Shakespeare's Richard III. I mean, <laughs> fabulous, man. That's great. So, and of course, the last time I saw you, we were in Nashville eating barbecue, too. That's we? right. On, like, one of the hottest days in, in uh, recorded history, I think. <laughs> Yeah, we, we, I think they, they cooked the barbecues on the hoods of our cars that day, right? on the ribs, yeah. <laughs> it's hot. <laughs> a good memory, though. It was great to see you. You person. too, you too. So take, me, take us back. Uh, how did this rumor get started uh, that, uh, that um, Paul died in a car crash in 1966? First, before we do that, what, supposedly how did he die in 66? It was a car wreck, wasn't it? Well, you know, that's what makes it all so interesting. And before we start, I'd have to say, I don't know of any other band that could create the hysteria that the Beatles did with Paul is Dead. I mean, I haven't heard anything on New Kids on the Block, you know, nothing like that. And just imagine how this would go if the internet was back then. Oh, I mean, man. it was like everybody was clamoring for as much information. It was almost a sense of power to get the clues. So 
before we do the date of the accident, let's, let's find out why it was reasonable, why people would even think that in the United States and, and in Canada as well. But, you know, the United States was really the hotbed of it. I know that if anybody who grew up in the 1960s, the early 60s, had gone through the Kennedy assassination, the Warren Commission report, and Richard, as well as anyone, you know the holes in that whole story. Right, right. And then Robert Kennedy's assassination, Martin Luther King's assassination, the war in Vietnam, and the government wasn't this warm and fuzzy group that took care of your needs. You know, matter of fact, they, they silenced dissidents. So Beatlemania the effect it had on American youth and all that, a lot of people believe that could have been a problem. So it was believable if you were growing up at the time and you were a Beatles fan to realize that something terrible like that could happen, that political assassinations, all of that. Now, it had nothing to do with McCartney, but it was a climate that made us believe. And that, to me, that was even more, I guess, more compelling with that. Now, the thing that made the Beatles a target was their music changed so radically. If you remember the first few Beatle albums, you know, they were just very pop-oriented, based a lot on the Brill Building sound. They wanted to be like Carole King and Jerry Goffin as far as songwriters. Sure, they hey, Mr. Postman. Rubber Soul, which was a change, and then when Revolver came out, and it was Psychedelia, and you had the backward tracks, and there were backward sounds, you know. It wasn't a backward track, but like on Tomorrow Never Knows. And then when Sgt. Pepper came out, it changed everything. The Beatles didn't sound like the Beatles. The Beatles didn't look like the Beatles. A lot of people were a little confused, and a lot of people really didn't like the direction the Beatles were going in. They wanted them to stay the same as, I, I want to hold your hand and she loves you. Of course, a group like the Beatles, they have to evolve, and that's what they were doing. So there had to be a reason. How did the Beatles change? And then the rumor came out that Paul McCartney had been killed in a car accident on November 9, 1966. Now, the date is documented in several Beatle histories about an accident McCartney had. And so you had that starting date. So obviously, if McCartney was gone, the cute Beatle, John wasn't popular in the United States because of his comments that the Beatles were more popular than Jesus Christ. Mm. The Beatles hated touring. Because in Memphis, uh, someone said that they were going to shoot them on stage or shoot John, and someone threw firecrackers. And then when they appeared in the Philippines, George turned to the other Beatles and said, you know, it's not fun being a Beatle anymore. So they secluded themselves in the studio. They didn't play live. So a lot of people were trying to find out why the Beatles weren't performing, how the music changed, and what's responsible. So this elaborate theory started that McCartney had been killed, that the Beatles themselves were forced to bring in an imposter, a lookalike, and that this person was not McCartney, obviously, but he would allow the Beatles to perform, to record their albums, and the Beatles could gradually just disappear. And the money would come into the coffers of EMI, the Warren Industries, Great Britain, and the Beatles themselves. But probably John Lennon gets the credit for this, that it was his idea to hide clues so that the fans would know about the imposter and know that what was being put on in front of them was a fraud. And that's what started in 1969, and it became probably the greatest hysteria, next to Orson Welles' War of the World, right, right. that swept the country. And but they, why did it take so long, uh, Gary, for the 
uh, for this legend. I mean, it was a. It was, someone called a. D- uh, let me turn my microphone around here. Finally, okay. So, okay. Someone called a DJ in Detroit. Yeah. Uh, um, and and this was in 1969 and started laying out all these clues. The DJ wow. broke format, started talking about this for two hours. I think ended up getting fired for it. So why did it take three years for this Paul is dead rumor to actually gain traction? Well, you know that's what's really interesting. I know that you're talking about Russ Gibb. Right. in Michigan, and the caller's name was Tom, and he calls Russ, and he says, hey, I want to rap with you about McCartney being dead and all that. And then, of course, Russ Gibb hadn't heard anything about it, and then slowly Tom starts laying out the clues. And everybody started listening to the show. It started to spread. It went to New York with Roby Young, who many claim was fired because he was really pumping out the legends all across the country, and he was removed. They came down and told him that he was starting a riot, that he had to get off the air, that people were calling in. So it became popular in 69. But, you know, your, your question is, why did it take so long? And, and let's take a look at it. I think the Beatles, you know, when there's three different reasons for this. First of all, it could be just totally ridiculous that a lot of people just made things fit. And it's kind of funny because like, for instance, you know, there was a group who said the word Apple, the Beatles label, is if you put an A in front of a word like a religious, it means without religion. So Apple means without pull. Ah, uh, that is a bit I'm of a saying? stretch. Listen, and, Gary, you know, I got, uh, let me get you to hold on. Let me get you to hold on. We'll take a time out. We'll come back and we'll start to delve into some of these clues that you have so masterfully uh, sort of unraveled. In your seminal work, 1996's The Walrus Was Paul, Rock and roll investigator R. Gary Patterson on The Conspiracy Show. Paul is dead. Back with more. Stay with us. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Welcome back to The Conspiracy Show, and we're, uh, I guess, commemorating the, what would it be, the 46th anniversary of Paul McCartney's death Yes, some say, some diehard conspiracy theorists within the uh, the Beatles uh, uh, fan community believe that McCartney was killed in an automobile act. Horrible, a fiery crash in uh, November 9th, 1966, stormed out of a recording session while doing uh, Sgt. Pepper's at about 5 o'clock in the morning, jumped in his car, supposedly, according to this legend, picks up a female hitchhiker, who is so amazed and so gobsmacked that she's just been picked up by one of the Fab Four that she tries to hug him and he loses control of the vehicle, smashes into a stone wall, is decapitated, burnt to a crisp. Uh, and then, of course, the, uh, the Beatles are um, going to high gear into, to cover this up. Uh, Gary, Gary Patterson is with us, uh, the author of The Walrus Was Paul, who uh, unraveled this mystery uh, going back some 16 years ago and a good friend of the program, uh, so, Gary, the the um, the idea was that if they didn't cover this up, and if McCartney was dead, it would have would have what meant the end of the Beatles. Uh, it would have meant the end of um, uh, well, I, I can't imagine. Um, you know, I, I can imagine rather that the, you know the, the the Beatles were probably one of the main exports for Britain at the time. I mean, millions of dollars must have been coming coming into the uh, into the royal coffers at this point. 
and you'd be right because you know it was the financial thing it was the you know just a, a huge amount of money that was coming into Great Britain and McCartney was the cute beetle he was the most popular and you know John Lennon had been a bad boy with his reference to uh you know to God being not as as big as the Beatles so you know there was there was an effect there. So I mean, people always try to put things together. Richard, as you know, one plus one equals three. Sometimes yes. And as they did that, that was that was the basis of the thing. Now, when you look at these rumors, the first one, you know, we were talking about, it's just totally ridiculous that people made fit like taking a sledgehammer and smashing a round peg in a square hole, and they were looking for clues that went back to 1964-65. So, if you give any credence to this then it would have to be after the Beatles' second world tour, if it did happen, which would make November 9, 1966, you know, a plausible thing, because they had returned. And the next set of clues would be guided looking and guided listening. And if you look at the album covers, you know, does the yellow hyacinth guitar on the grave, does it really spell out Paul question mark? If you look at it, it's left-handed. All right, McCartney was the only left-handed Beatle in the band. If you count the strings on the instrument, there's only three. Well, there were four Beatles. Now there would only be three. This is the Sergeant Pepper cover. This, this is the Sergeant Pepper cover. Yeah, Sergeant yeah. Pepper's. But if you go back and you go back um, uh, the album, a couple of albums before, um, I can't remember the um, the name of the Yesterday and Today. The original album cover, and this is a collector's item because it oh, featured yeah. the the Fab Four there, and they all had these horribly disfigured, mangled dolls <laughs> all over them on their right. lap, on their you know draped over their shoulder and so forth. It was it was pulled off the market, I guess, because it was seen as distasteful. Yes, but supposedly that's a clue, right? Well, the idea was, you know, it was a butcher cover. If you want to make a clue to it, you, if you go back and look at the butcher cover, McCartney has his mouth open, and it's like he has no teeth, like his teeth were knocked out in the accident. And George is holding a, a headless doll next to him. Now, that might, that's probably a great stretch. But And then the rumor that the Beatles were objecting to Capitol Records butchering their albums because the songs were placed in different order in the United States than they were in Great Britain. But the record company wasn't very, well, they were appalled by the avant-garde cover the Beatles did. So they pasted a number of them up, and that became the Beatles yesterday and today. And if you look at the pasted cover, it looks like McCartney is sitting in a trunk, which some people interpreted as a coffin. And the other Beatles are around him. And, of course, the title, Yesterday and Today. All right, Yesterday, you know, Paul's famous song, Today, Paul's Dead. So people look back. I don't think it went that far back. I think that's a really good stretch. But if you look, to me, Sergeant Peppers is the answer. Because I honestly believe that the Beatles actually planted some clues themselves. And I've got an interesting theory on why they did that. But, but still, you know, it was brilliant the way they did it. And there's a lot of things on Sergeant Pepper on the cover. If you've got your Sergeant Pepper album... You I do, right here in front of me. Well, Richard, that's because you're always up on everything, my friend. And... <laughs> well, I knew you were going to come around to the Sergeant Pepper, and of course, uh, you know, with with the Beatles, all roads lead to Sergeant Pepper. So, yeah, let's walk through some of the clues then. Okay, first of all, let's start with the wax figure Beatles. Yes. And if you'll notice, several of them are looking down at this, which appears to be a freshly dug grave. Mm -hmm. 
And, of course, I think Lennon's looking up because, you know, he doesn't follow it. He's trying to get the truth. And the other Beatles, they're all dressed the same, the wax figures. But if you look at the Beatles in the center, they're dressed in these psychedelic colors, you know, like butterflies that have come out of Cocoon, you know. And it's all differences. And then if you look at the grave itself, it has Beatles. It doesn't have the Beatles. So a lot of people say, oh, well, there are Beatles on the album, but not the band. There's something missing. Mm-hmm. Like the four strings on a bass guitar, well, there's only three strings on the bass guitar. If you look at McCartney's hand holding his instrument, he has three fingers on the instrument, another reference to the number three. And then there were now, three, yes. Yeah, it would be hard to say, okay, you're going to... All right, your name is Billy Shears. You're going to take his place. And, uh, oh, would you mind holding three fingers to show everybody you're not real? You know, I mean, who knows how you could do that, but you have that. And then there's the doll figure as you go to the right of it. Yes. And she's sitting in this stuffed figure's lap. And if you'll look, it's got a driving glove on its left hand, and it appears to be caked in blood. I never noticed that. There you yeah. go. Okay. So a left-handed figure. If you look down directly in front of the doll... It appears one of the arrangements appears to be a car crashing with flames coming out of the back. Do mm. you see that? Yes. You mentioned that you mentioned the the the, the bloody shoes. Oh uh, yeah. Um, that's um, uh, in Magical Mystery Tour. That's it. There's a scene where Paul McCartney is playing in his sock feet, in his stocking feet, mm-hmm. standing beside a pair of bloody shoes. That's so there's right, that right. motif again. Yeah, that's pretty spooky. And then if you read the bass drum on the, on the Magical Mystery Tour album, which were basically songs left over from Sgt. Pepper's, if you read it, it says, Love the Three Beatles. Mm-hmm. Yes. But there's four, right? Yes. Interesting. And uh, even the word love, if you look at it carefully, it almost looks like Paul, if you'll look at it. But going back to the Sgt. Pepper cover, I mean, they have figures who are notoriously bad. You have figures who are comedians. You have uh, gurus. You have people of enlightenment. So the left-hand path, if you look at the top row, the second figure from the top is Aleister Crowley. Yes, yes. Now, why was he on a Beatle cover, you know? But it's in the left-hand path. So I think the Beatles are trying to, to make a statement, you know, about yin and yang and all of this, you know, their enlightenment. But to me... The one thing that no one can explain, and we're going to come to this now, is if you look in the crowd, you see Carl Jung, all right? You'll also see a guy whose name is Lewis Carroll. Yes. And you'll also see Edgar Allan Poe, a a number of notables. Edgar Allan Poe. Yeah. Winston Churchill. Uh, Lewis Carroll wrote Alice's Adventures Through the Looking Glass. Yes. So that was a clue, because the clue was that you could use a mirror and you could find these clues. For instance, back to Magical Mystery Tour, the word Beatles on Magical Mystery Tour, if you held the album upside down and you connected the large stars, then a phone number would uh, would appear that you could call and get the truth. <laughs> a, a lot of people at that time, now this is 1969, some people called and they said that when they called the number, a funeral home answered. Well, Ooh. that's spooky. Another group of people claimed that a mysterious voice only said, you're getting closer. And then finally... Another voice appeared to some callers and was quizzing them on Beatle history with a chance to send them to a place called Pepperland. And as soon as the clues hit, the number was disconnected. So that was kind of interesting. But now, the, the, uh, also the, on the album cover, you've got the, Lonely Hearts, uh, the words Lonely Hearts on the drum logo. That's and it. again, that's with what... the mirror, that mirror trick, what does that spell? Okay, this, this to me was the smoking gun of the whole thing. 
because if you take the bass drum, which you got to admit, Richard, it looks like if it was in the center over a freshly dug grave, it would have to be a tombstone. And the painter of the of the drum skin's name was Joe Epgrave, and at first it looks like Ep Grave Epitaph on a grave. Mm. Well, I want you to know that I have talked to Joe Epgrave's granddaughter, and she said, you know, about her grandfather being actually commissioned to do this. And they think that they have the two drum skins, the original uh, artwork he was doing is in their barn or whatever. I said, well, if you have that, you, you've got an awful lot of money. But there really is a Joe Epgrave. We thought that, well, Joe Epgrave may be a clue with the name, but that existed. So anyway, what you have to do is you take a straight-edge mirror and you place it in the center of Lonely Hearts. And you read from the reflection to the album cover. And the first thing you see is numeral one, and then it spells O-N-E, and then you have numeral I-X, and then it says he die. And between he and die is a diamond-shaped arrow that points straight up to Paul McCartney and down to the grave. So McCartney just happens to be standing where the arrow points directly to him. And over his head is an open hand that picks him out of the crowd. Life magazine said that in Far Eastern societies, an open hand over someone's head was a symbol of death. Well, you know, that fits in great, which you already know what the outcome's going to be. But <laughs> to me, he's picked out of the group, and the drum skin points directly at him. Now, what all this means at first, I thought it could be one of the Beatles, the one with nine letters, he died because McCartney's the only Beatle with nine letters. I've also heard it in, interpreted as one, 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 X, like you're crossing one out, he died. But what you've got to look at, if it's a actual epitaph on a tombstone, then what you have to do is you'd know that it would give you the date of death. So if you put it together, like one, numeral one, and then O-N-E, those two ones make 11. Right. And then Roman numeral IX is 9. So you have 11, 9. He died. Well, 11, 9 is November the 9th. Now, what's really spooky when I was doing this, I thought, well, you know, in Great Britain, it would be the day and then the month. All right? So it would be 9, 11, right? Mm -hmm. Which would be, you know, an American history thing about 9, 11. Sure, sure. Oh, my gosh, September 11th. But, you know, it didn't fit as far as the clue goes, because the clue was November 9th. Now, to make it even more interesting, the Sgt. Pepper cover was the first album in history that actually had the lyrics on the back. So if you turn the album cover over to the back, you'll see that the lyrics are all there, and George Harrison is pointing with his thumb to a certain line from the song She's Leaving Home. And the line says, Wednesday morning at 5 o'clock as the day begins. Well, November 9th, 1966, was a Wednesday, and the accident was reported to have been at 5 o'clock. So here on the back, on the blood-red cover, Harrison's pointing to the line Wednesday morning. Wow. To say, to say nothing of Lennon's A Day in the Life, which had the lyrics, he blew his mind out in a car. <laughs> That's right. He hadn't noticed the lights had changed, but listen to this line. Uh, when he says nobody was really sure if he was from the House of Lords. That's what the lyric says, but when you listen to it, listen carefully, because he goes into falsetto, and it sounds exactly like he's saying nobody was really sure if he was from the House of Paul. Ah. 
So when you get a chance to listen to Day in the Life again, check that out. It's it's almost as if, as you say, they they were playing they were playing into this that they their their publicists or the Beatles themselves were taking advantage of this rumor, deliberately putting these clues in there because this is just too neat and tidy. That, that's what I think. I mean, I can't discount that the phrase "lonely hearts." on that drum skin would just innocently reveal that with McCartney standing in the exact position. So the question is, who came up with the idea of calling the album Lonely Hearts Club Band? All right. I know that McCartney was thinking about calling it Dr. Peppers, and then they realized it was soft drink. They couldn't do that. So Sergeant Peppers, and then, uh, you know, like a band in the, in the street. But the story goes from what I've researched. Just hold on there. Hold on. We'll, we'll pick yeah. up on that story when we come back. Yeah. Who was oh. this, this, member, this fictional member of the band called Billy Shears. Was that the new Paul? You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. A pleasure to report that Beatle Paul McCartney is alive and well, and as he puts it, unconcerned about the rumors of his death. Any parent can testify the lifestyle of the Beatles has always been somewhat different. And if you believe current rumor, their style of revealing Paul McCartney's alleged death is being carried out with singular taste. Paul doesn't have shoes on. To some, that is a death symbol. Well, there he is. He walks, he talks, he sings. Paul McCartney of the Beatles. He finally got in front of a camera in Glasgow today to put an end to the speculation that he is no longer among the living. He is. And now the whole world has been apprised of that fact. October 69, three weeks after the Beatles' celebrated Abbey Road album was released, WKNR-FM's Russ Gibb took a call from a man who identified himself only as Tom. The Detroit DJ listened as the caller carefully laid out clues hidden in Beatles songs and album art, which he said indicated Paul McCartney had died on November 9, 1966 in an automobile accident. Listeners began deluging New York City radio stations with evidence, and soon the rumors spread around the world Was this a Beatles publicity stunt, a fan-feeding frenzy fueled by clues left as an inside joke by John Lennon, or was Paul really dead? Our Gary Patterson, rock and roll investigator, author of The Walrus Was Paul, uh, as well as uh, Hellhounds on Their Trail, uh, joins us here on The Conspiracy Show to discuss. And um, uh, before the break, we were talking about... uh, uh, I've, now I've lost our, our, our train there. Where where were we, uh, uh, Gary? We were discussing the um, the lyrics from uh, Strawberry Fields Forever, was it? Or um, He Blew His Mind Out in a Car, A Day in the Life. Yeah, just uh, as it ends, you know, the idea that no one was really from the house of Paul. Right. And, of course, you know, when you take a look at Strawberry Fields Forever, that was a major clue at the time. And if you listen to the end, of course, you hear a voice that appears to say, I buried Paul, and that was supposedly John Lennon reminding everyone that he was the one who had buried him. He was his best friend, his songwriting partner. And then later when the anthology came out, it became clear that the voice said, Cranberry Sauce. (laughs) How do you confuse Cranberry Sauce for I Buried Paul? Yeah, Cranberry Sauce, I Buried Paul. Well, Derek Taylor, the Beatle press officer, when they asked him if uh, John had said, I buried Paul, Derek said, no, no, I was in the studio with him. I distinctly heard what he said. He said, I'm very bored. 
<laughs> so if you listen, I swear, if you listen, you can hear all three phrases. It just shows, you know, how, you know, the power of suggestion actually makes that happen. I call that guided looking and guided listening. Sure, sure. Listen, in order for McCartney's death to have been kept under wraps, they would have needed a lookalike to substitute for him. Yes. Now, so who was it? Who Was there an actual Billy Shears <laughs> or Billy well, Shears Campbell? Well, William Campbell who uh, actually was supposedly from Canada, uh, winner of the Paul McCartney Lookalike Contest. That was convenient for him. And uh, a lot of people thought, remember the singer Keith, who had the song 98.6, I believe Keith had actually won a Paul McCartney Lookalike Contest. But, uh, yeah, you, you heard that name. And then you heard the name uh, Billy Shears, whose father's name was Philip Shears. And they lived in Chelsea. <laughs> and, I mean, it became... I don't know. You had a lot of publications that were picking up and, and bringing this out. Now, the, the reason Billy Shears comes out is that in the song Sgt. Pepper's Only Hearts Club Band, McCartney sings, I don't really want to stop the show, which would be a reference to, since he's dead, he doesn't want to end the power of Beatlemania. But I think you might like to know the singer wants to sing a song. He wants you all to sing along. So let me introduce to you the one and only Billy Shears of Sergeant Pepper's Only Hearts Club Band. And then the all Beatles sing together, Billy Shears. And what's the first thing he says? What would you think if I sang out of tune? Would you stand up and walk out on me? So the idea of this imposter came in who uh, the Beatles had brought and was forced to keep him in the band so the you know, the great money would still flow into the coffers. And it's pretty funny now, because if you look at it in 69, much more believable. But you got to remember, this guy, the imposter, if he really did come in, he wrote better songs than McCartney. <laughs> yeah, I, I think the post-McCartney, you know, post-66 McCartney, even uh, yeah. some of the stuff that he's doing now, I mean, <laughs> uh, and, yeah. and I think without question, the greatest bass player out there, even today. I mean, the, the, he plays that thing like it's a lead guitar. He does, and I think that's the one thing about McCartney. He's a fabulous bass player, and he and James Jamerson from Motown were probably the two most instrumental bassists you know, to define the instrument. Now, you may argue Duck Dunn from Booker T and EMGs, who recently passed away, but when I think of Jamerson, I think of McCartney. Matter of fact, when the Beatles did Drive My Car, it was a tribute to James Jamerson, the bass lines that he would create. So, you know, they were in there. And the funny thing is, McCartney really didn't want to play bass. The story goes that when Stu Sutcliffe decided he would stay in Germany and be an artist, that the Beatles got together, and John said, well, I can't play bass because I just bought this brand-new Rickenbacker. And then George says, well, I can't play bass because I brought this brand-new Gretsch. And Paul looked at him and said, okay, I'll play bass, and I'll pick up a cheap bass guitar. So he picks up a Hofner. Mm -hmm. and, he made, <laughs> and he made that instrument famous. Listen, he another made it into an icon. So another timeout, Gary Awaits. Listen, we'll take another quick timeout, come back yeah. and finish up and uh, discuss uh, clues on Abbey Road. And who was this Maxwell and his silver hammer? Was he an MI6 agent who was hired to keep them in line? We'll find out. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Welcome back. Uh, our Gary Patterson is with us. Just a few moments remain to discuss the Paul is dead legend that will not die. A number of uh, people still believe that McCartney was replaced by a double, or doubles, I should say, because, I'm just looking at a website here, 
And it says, um, a biometrical analysis by a team of Italian forensic scientists has proven Paul McCartney was replaced by a celebrity impersonator in 1966. The mandibular curve, the tragus, the nasal spine, the palate, and the canines were suddenly different, making it impossible that it was the, the same person. And then many others looked at the, the photographs with uh, McCartney's um, uh, uh, girlfriend, Jane Asher, and noticed a height discrepancy with uh, the faux Paul, or fall, as some call him, the old Paul McCartney. Uh, and, that, and then it goes on to say that the, the, the faux Paul, whether it was Billy uh, Campbell or someone else, um, ended up sort of retiring in 1980, and then he was replaced by a third Paul, someone by the name of Phil Ackrell, who also had plastic surgery. Ackrell mostly took over until 2002 when the real Paul... Oh, now this theory is that Paul McCartney uh, uh, Paul McCartney didn't die, but retired in 1964. Anyway, it's very convoluted. <laughs> if, you're, if you're connecting the dots, uh, God bless you. But uh, anyway, our Gary Patterson. Um, <laughs> uh, Abbey Road. Of course, we have that famous... Some call it a funeral procession across mm-hmm. the Abbey Road where John dressed in white is the clergy. George in black is the, the mourner. Uh, sorry, George in, in denim is the grave digger. Ringo, I guess, is the mourner. And Paul is in barefoot, therefore the, the, the corpse. Yeah, he's also got his eyes closed, holding a cigarette in his right hand, whereas McCartney was left-handed. And he's got a very old suit on that's at least three years old so you know that's what they say as far as the procession the one thing that's kind of interesting about it if you look carefully mccartney is out of step with the other three the others start with their left foot mccartney starts with his right foot so he's different in the picture and most of the pictures mccartney he was portrayed differently to bring attention to him so one of the first things you ask on the show was, you know, why did this wait till 1969? Well, remember the White Album when the song Glass Onion came out is when John Lennon sang, I told you about the walrus and me, man. You know that we're as close as can be, man. He says, and here's another clue for you all. The walrus was Paul. So when he said, here's another clue for you all, that infers that there were clues in the right, past. Right, Making sure you're paying attention. Now, you may say that the Beatles did this because their fans were constantly looking for all these fine little details in all their work. So they said, okay, let's have a game with this. Let's see what we can do. But in January of 67, there was a rumor that went through England that McCartney had been killed on icy roads on the M1 motorway. And it was a little hysterical. So Abbey Road actually called the studio, actually called McCartney to St. John's Woods home and ask how he was. He said, well, I'm fine. So I'm beginning to wonder in January 67 if that was the beginning of, wow, this might be fun. But I have another theory too, Richard, I'm going to share on your show. I think that with the making of the Sgt. Pepper's album, it was a great risk to the Beatles because they knew everything was going to change. And of course, they were inspired by the Beach Boys pet sounds. So what if they decided to put a few clues on there. And if the album didn't sell very well, if the clues came out, people would be buying the album to find the clues. Ah, makes sense. A great marketing ploy. And what about these, this photographic or biometrical analysis? I mentioned Jane Asher, and, and uh, uh, people pointed to the, uh, the picture of, of McCartney with Jane Asher and the height discrepancy. 
Uh, and then we have this uh, supposed Italian forensic scientist proving uh, McCartney was replaced because they, they looked at the mandibular curve, which is mm-hmm. the jawline, the nasal spine, the palate, the canines are different. Sure, but you know what makes this interesting is that these supposed doctors have never come forward and said, okay, this is what I have. In Life magazine, there was a, a Dr. Toby who was in University of Miami, and he was the one who did a voice analysis and said the voice was not Paul McCartney's uh, when he sampled the voice, and he had, had this thing. But when it came time to be on television and make the announcement, he, uh, he didn't show up. You know, he refused to get up there. And you've got to remember, in the United States, Richard, there was actually a television show on this that was hosted by F. Lee Bailey. Yes, yes. <laughs> and listen to this. The whole video has disappeared. That show no longer exists. I have the audio for it. The night of, and somebody sat in front of a camp, in front of the TV set with a tape recorder, and you can hear a little sixty cycle hum on it. But I do have the tape, and listen to all the questions. And the story goes that when F. Lee Bailey asked Fred Labore, the one who came up with the very descriptive crossing of Abbey Road. He said, is there, is there anything to this? And Fred Labor says, nah, we just made it up. He says, well, we got to make it look real. So they went into the show. So that's what makes it interesting. You know, what about those is, photographs, though? Uh, I, I, yeah, well, I'll tell you about the photographs. Those photographs were taken. Uh, there were a number of pictures taken on the same day. And there's a picture where McCartney's much taller than Jane Asher. Uh, there's pictures that they may not have shoes. The camera angles are different. Okay. Why would it be significant if he were taller than Jane Asher? Because she well, was... would imply... I think he was supposed to be shorter. You know, he was not as tall. Right. But uh, the idea was that would imply that the difference in his height would mean he was an imposter. Now, the other thing that I've seen is a face that morphs from McCartney in 64, and the faces do not match after, say, in 67. And the funny thing about it was, when I did this, I did this on Coast to Coast one night. Let me tell you, I actually went to a TBI agent from who had studied at the at the famous Body Farm, and went over the forensics on how this was with the photograph, and it's on my side. But you know, the idea that the face can morph, the thing that really sort of brought it down was that they had Tara Brown's face morphing into McCartney. So they said, well, you know, Tara Brown may have taken McCartney's place. Well, Tara Brown was killed. He was the character killed, and he blew his mind out in a car. He was driving his Lotus, and he was killed there. And his girlfriend with him at the time had predicted that two other men would die because of her, and she was right, because she had dated Brian Jones, he died, Mm. and Jimi Hendrix. But anyway, the whole story goes that, you know, too many faces that morphed into McCartney. So that, and and then there, if you know anything about really good uh, photographic uh, evidence and how to do it, you know faces are stretched when they put them in pictures on album covers. So I've seen all the evidence with that. Uh, I would like to hear the doctor come forward and really show some evidence with it. But you know you could do DNA testing. I mean McCartney's uh, brother, Mike McGear's there. And all you have to do is take a hair with a hair root, and you've got DNA, you could do that. But it would seem kind of odd to do that, because like I said, the guy who's McCartney today, which I think is Paul McCartney, I'm pretty sure of that, but still, he is so much more talented. 
I mean, okay, I'll give you. Maybe Biker like an icon. All right, maybe he wishes he hadn't written that one. Maybe that was the imposter who did that song. But, you know, maybe I'm amazed, uh, Live and Let Die. Those are some great songs. Yeah, not bad for a, a celebrity lookalike. Let me uh, work in a phone call here. Daniel has been patient, waiting on the line. He's in Rochester. Daniel, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Uh, thank you, Richard. I, uh, I, it's it's a joy to be on your fine program here. Thank you. And uh, I, uh, I want to ask you guests. Uh, I have a question coming, but let me introduce it. Um, I'm a musician. I have done some work composing in other people's styles, um, and uh, whether it's Bach and Mozart or Thelonious Monk or whoever. But the, it's it's very difficult, and I don't hear. Uh, a real difference in style between the McCartney of uh, yesterday, say, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, Blackbird, uh, Blackbird, say, or or some of the uh, the other works. Uh, what 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 can you cite as musical evidence uh, for for this? Well, what I would cite is, as you, as a musician myself, I can't tell any difference in style of playing and tone, whatever. Now, you might be able to tell if it's a Hofner bass or a Rickenbacker bass, you know, the sound quality of that. But, you know, you have your own distinctive style. When I hear Duck Dunn, I know it's Booker T and EMGs. I can identify the bass part. As great musicians do, you can tell. McCartney, his style is... Well, it was so fresh at the time, and still is, that, you know, just the way he plays bass. I mean, I wouldn't call it a lead bass, but, you know, he fills in the space, he keeps it moving. And not only that, he's a fabulous guitar player, too. Uh, he does the guitar solo on Taxman, you know, which is uh, one of the best Beatles solos I know. And a pretty good drummer, and a pretty good drummer. Someone once asked him, uh, is Ringo Starr the best drummer in, in rock? And he said he's not even the best drummer in the Beatles, meaning him, <laughs> he was the best drummer in the Beatles. Well, McCartney would erase Ringo's drum parts on the White Album. He couldn't get uh, back in the USSR right, so he would record the drum parts himself, and Ringo would have to come in the next day and pretend to notice that he he wasn't the drummer on the song, and that's why he left the Beatles for a while. And if you see the movie Let It Be, at the very first, Mal Evans is putting flowers on the drums when they wrote Ringo and said, Ringo, you know, you're the only drummer for us. Please come back, and he did. So there was a lot of tension there because McCartney was very hands-on as a producer. He kept a guitar in the studio. He'd do the guitar parts. He'd do the drum parts. And uh, I think that that was a threat at a time where he was taking off more as a producer. But what a band. What fabulous music that lasts forever. And long may you reign, Paul. Yes, and, Paul. Yes, and yet the, the rumor still persists. I mean, yeah. there, are, there are variations on it. Some, some contend that the reason that he, McCartney was replaced by a double was that he was, in fact, uh, murdered, as was Lennon, as was Harrison, because they all knew too much, and you can fill in the blanks as what did they know, that they were, a, yeah. they, they were useful fools, they were a, they were a creation of MI6 or the Tavistock right. Institute, that they were... Um, they were a part of the, an actual British invasion designed to turn the American culture onto sex, drugs, and rock and roll, a distraction from the Vietnam War and, and the Kennedy assassination and so forth. But, but isn't and, that the purpose of a great urban legend? That oh, it never yes. dies, it just continues, just picks up steam. A whole new generation hears it. Uh, they do the clues, and then they find others, and, and then someone takes it a little far out, and it makes it much more political. But, you know, still, it was a... 
it was a fabulous time to have lived. It was great music to listen to, and I tell you, I still listen to it today. Uh, and thankfully, uh, you know, McCartney and uh, it, it still still youthful can still, uh, you know, produce an amazing uh, album. So we we can still enjoy it. And, and and you know, he sounds a lot like the Beatles in some of his his later recordings. So yeah, well, you know that that was the style they helped develop. You know, he and John Lennon sitting in their bedrooms in Liverpool trying to get the Everly Brothers harmony down. But yet, I think the secret to rock and roll is you, you take something, and then you add something to it, and then you set it down and let someone else carry it a little further. The problem in rock and roll history is no one's ever taken it further. If you take the evolution of the Beatles from, say, Rubber Soul, Revolver, uh, Sgt. Pepper's, no other band made that type of progression. No, it's it's like they were from a different planet. I mean, when in '68, when uh, when I think they had peaked, or '67, let's say, uh, you had other bands coming over that were still sounding like you know Herman's Hermits from 1964, yeah. still doing that old Mercy Beat kind of thing, and yet the Beatles were miles ahead of them. Uh, miles ahead. Everybody was trying to catch up with them. Remember, the Rolling Stones did Her Satanic Majesty's Request to keep up with the Beatles' Sgt. Pepper's album. Yeah, indeed. Hey, what are you working on these days, Gary, before we say goodnight? Well, right now, still trying to pitch a couple of television things, Richard, that we've talked about. Yes, and, yes. Uh, I'm writing some chapters in a new book now, and uh, hopefully it'll be another version of Take a Walk on the Dark Side, some more tales, which means we get to come back and talk about some new stuff, and that will be fun. Absolutely. Look forward to it. Anytime, anytime, Gary. You're always uh, a pleasure to have on. Thanks for this. Gary Patterson. All right. You can follow me on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash Richard Serrett, and the website, richardserrett.com. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Hey, friends. Welcome to the broadcast. To our friends down in uh, Hudson Valley, in, uh, in Asheville, North Carolina, in Flagstaff, Arizona, uh... Those of you listening here in Toronto, from Thunder Bay on down to the Carolinas, Maine to Minnesota, online, around the world, at richardserrett.com and zoomerradio.com, welcome, welcome. Uh, you missed the chaos here earlier. <laughs> We're scrambling to find the right mic. I've got three. I'm sitting at a table, uh, and there's three microphones here, because normally there are a number of people huddled around this table uh, during the day doing uh, different talk shows and so forth. Uh, so I come in here, and I, uh, I've got three choices, and I grab uh, the wrong one, of course. So uh, doing a mic test, and that's not the right one, and it's getting close to airtime. I grab the other one. That's not, I go to air with the wrong microphone. Uh, and then I had the mic turned around, and then scrambling to get the right microphone, I spilled my water. I tell you, it's like uh, uh, the Three Stooges all over again. I'm the one stooge. Anyway, welcome. You know, I was um, online earlier today, and I, f- I saw this fascinating story. I posted up to the website, uh, richardserrett.com, and um, scientists, they're saying, are discovering a-, a way to make time pass faster uh, or slower, if you prefer. And these findings could help explain why time flies, right, when, when we're having fun. A new understanding of how the brain processes time could, only, uh, could one day allow scientists to tweak an individual's sense of timing. New research suggests timekeeping in the brain is decentralized, with different neural circuits having their own timing mechanisms for specific activities. Not only does it raise the possibility of artificially manipulating time perceptions, let me repeat that, it raises the possibility of artificially manipulating time perceptions. But the finding could also explain why our sense of time changes 
in different conditions, such as when we're having fun or are under stress, right? Time flies when you're having fun. Um, or if you're on a strict diet, uh, you know, what's that old saying? You know, if you, uh, if you eat right and you get rid of, you know, if you don't drink and you don't smoke uh, and you eat vegetables, uh, you won't live any longer. It'll just seem that way. <laughs> All right. Listen, we uh, have a fascinating show for you tonight. A little bit later, I'm going to welcome uh, Stephen Kelly. Stephen Kelly is a, um, a former engineer uh, involved in the production, a production of Black Ops Advanced Massive Optics Weaponry, and we'll find out what that all means. Uh, but the big bombshell here he's going to lay on is he's going to tell us how he was essentially um, oppressed into service to develop a weapon to, def- to, uh, to fight aliens. To fight aliens, ladies and gentlemen. So we'll uh, welcome Stephen Kelly here in just a moment. But first, it is the second Sunday of the month, uh, which means we welcome in our paranormal researcher to discuss her latest investigation, which takes us tonight to southwestern Pennsylvania, where a woman apparently has encountered shadow people and an attempted abduction by a creature with lobster-like claws here to tell us more is one of the leading experts in the paranormal with more than 50 books published by major houses on a wide range of paranormal, spiritual, and mystical topics, including nine single-volume encyclopedias, Rosemary Ellen Guiley. How are you? Welcome. Hi, Richard. Well, I'm on the trail again. Southwestern Pennsylvania. Uh, This is an isolated sort of rural area, and tell me about this farm that you visited on a number of occasions. Yes, this is in a part of the state that I have spent um, years in, off and on, documenting phenomena. It's kind of a hotbed of paranormal activity. Uh, it's in the area where the Allegheny Mountains join up with the uh, start to, you know, blend into the Appalachians, and there are lots of farms dotted around the countryside in hollows. They call them haulers. And uh, typically you, you get um, runs in these haulers that you have uh, hills on either side and widely spaced out farms. Um, people can uh, live there for generations. And uh, a lot of really strange things goes on. Well, I've uh, documented a lot of UFO activity, Bigfoot, mysterious creatures, shadow people, hauntings that... Uh, seem to be caused by the gin. And I have an, a new case now involving um, a farmhouse that, according to the residents, and the wife grew up in the farmhouse uh, for decades, uh, has been haunted by shadow people on the property. They get uh, weird screams at night, which are associated with Bigfoot. Uh, there's possibly multiple manifestations of paranormal activity. This is an area where uh, people have described UFO activity in the skies, including during the day, not just seeing lights, but seeing actual craft. And uh, the hillside near the farm uh, has been haunted by shadow figures, mysterious lights. I've seen the lights. 
That's a, that's an awful lot for one family to endure, uh, and this has been going on for generations on this farm. Why do they hang? Why do they stick it out? Well, uh, one thing I found in these rural areas is that uh, it gets to be part of the backdrop. You know, it's just the way things are, and the new um, normal. <laughs> sorry. The new normal, I guess. <laughs> the new normal. Well, one of the things that. Uh, is very peculiar about this case is when she was a teenager, uh, the wife had visitations and one night an attempted abduction by a creature who appeared in the window and reached in with huge claws that she said looked like lobster claws and uh, attempted to extract her from her bed and pull her out through the window. And she wrestled with this thing and fought it off, and it withdrew through the window. Well, in the morning, uh, she thought, oh, well, she must have had a horrible nightmare, but the arm that this creature had grabbed was black and blue and bruised and very sore. Uh, I have documented similar things with shadow people. They don't have lobster claws. But when they do attack people in their bed, sometimes people say that they they have a black and and blue bruises the next day from them. Uh, so it's part of a syndrome of phenomena that I've documented elsewhere in the area, quite a quite a large area. So I'm going back again. Um, and actually tomorrow, I will be there tomorrow and tomorrow night for a nighttime surveillance. I'm setting up some cameras and uh, hoping to catch some of these shadow people in action. They, um, have you seen anything in your previous trips out to this farm? I have seen the, I have seen the mysterious lights in the forest. I haven't seen the shadow people yet, but I have seen the, these yellow lights moving around in the trees on the hillside. And how about the Bigfoot and, uh, screams? They are in the vicinity of the ruins of some very small stone chambers that nobody knows who built them and what for. Uh, we have haunted stone chambers in, in New York State. I don't know if there is a relationship between the two because these are much smaller, but um, that's a, a peculiarity. And other uh, people on my investigation team have also seen yellow lights. So um, there will be several of us tomorrow night doing the surveillance to see if we can capture some some shadow people on video or digital footage. Uh, And what about these Bigfoot screams in the vicinity? Have you heard any of those? I haven't yet because um, uh, they typically come in the middle of the night. And so this will be the first time that I'm doing an all-nighter. I've been there during the day and during the early evening. Um, the, the screams uh, from the description sound to me like those associated with Bigfoot. Now, the, the family there uh, associates them with the shadow people because the shadow people show up at the same time that the screaming is going on. So um, yeah, I don't know, you know, who's responsible yet for the screams. You've uh, met this woman, they're, obviously. They're not animal screams. They're not. Okay. Now, you've met this woman, and she seems, uh, you know, credible and, and believable, uh, this this uh, woman that lives on the farm? Very. Uh, she's in her middle 40s. Uh, she's a professional 
very well grounded. Um, I've met her husband. They have a teenage daughter. Now, the shadow people have not come in the house. They've only been outside on the property. And uh, I found a fair number of shadow people cases that are related to strictly the outside areas. I think that some of them have certain tracks that they travel or certain pieces of land where they get their energy from, and uh, that's what they stick to. And the ones here in this area seem to follow certain tracks along the hauler uh, and also the hillside. Aside from that one uh, attempted abduction and attack by, uh, a, let's call him Lobster Boy, uh, has this family <laughs> has this family um, suffered any other sort of uh, a- attacks from the shadow people or um, any other apparitions? They have not come inside the house. The shadow people have not come inside the house, and uh, the the wife, is, who is the principal experiencer, has uh, not. Uh, had other episodes where she felt she's had ET-like abductions. Uh, however, she has not tried any sort of um, hypnosis um, regression or anything like that, which is often how abductees recover their their memories of abductions. So um, she feels that because she was able to re- repel this thing on this one episode, that it... it decided not to try again. What are they hoping that you can do for them, Rosemary? Why did they reach out to you? Do they, are they hoping that you can, um, uh, I guess, prove that they're not crazy, that, that, that something's going on? Do they expect you to cleanse their property? What do they want from you? Uh, they're not looking for a cleansing because they, like, like myself, I think that you're not going to get rid of these things. And I met them through a mutual acquaintance in the community, and uh, they heard that I was doing some research and uh, offered to share their experiences with me. They, they have a very realistic out- outlook on these things, which I also find in a lot of these remote areas where people encounter these phenomena. Sometimes they grow up with them, and it's just part of the backdrop of living. They don't expect it to go away. Sometimes they're looking for explanations. Uh, and some validation that they're not the only ones out there having these experiences. So if you are able to capture one of these shadow people on film, I mean, that would, or video, I mean, that would be a first, right? We ha- there is no sort of credible photographic or videotape evidence of these creatures, I'm guessing. I've never seen any what I would call credible video footage of shadow people. There have been uh, things shown on reality TV in the past, but uh, it looks fabricated to me. All right, well, I listen. I have seen digital photographs that can't be explained. Well, good luck uh, uh, tomorrow night. Most people are eyewitness things. Well, good luck tomorrow night and uh, with your uh, stakeout. Uh, stay warm, stay safe, and uh, look forward to an update on this story. Rosemary Ellen Guiley, VisionaryLiving.com, the website. Good night, Rosemary. Good night. Lasers, cavers, and magic. A former black ops engineer talks about developing a weapon designed to fight aliens. When The Conspiracy Show continues, back with more in a moment. Stay with us. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Welcome back, friends. Good to have you aboard. Just a reminder, uh, you may have heard the ad, uh, those listening locally, uh, that uh, on November the 16th, Friday, November the 16th, 
Conspiracy Culture, our good friends down at Conspiracy Culture here in Toronto, 1696 Queen Street West, will be presenting a lecture Q&A meet and greet and book signing event with G. Edward Griffin, of course, the author of The Creature from Jekyll Island, World Without Cancer, The Capitalist Conspiracy. He will be here in Toronto Friday, November the 16th. Conspiracy Culture presents The New World Order, A Second Look at the United Nations uh, with G. Edward Griffin. I will be um, uh, emceeing. And if you go to the website richardserrett.com and scroll down to events, you'll see the banner there for the event. The New World Order, A Second Look at the United Nations with special guest G. Edward Griffin, hosted by yours truly at The Conspiracy Show, uh, presented by Conspiracy Culture. Uh, Click on that banner ad, and it'll take you uh, through to a page where you'll get all the details. Uh, The doors open at 6 p.m., event starts at 7. It's being held at Trinity St. Paul United Church, which is um, uh, 427 Bloor Street West, just a five-minute walk from the Spadina subway station. I really hope to see you there. All right, we now... Uh, delve into the strange life, the strange case of Stephen D. Kelly, an engineer involved in the production of Black Ops Advanced Massive Optics Weaponry. He's here to tell us about his journey from guns and lasers to metaphysics and spirituality. Stephen Kelly, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? Hey, Richard. How are you? Glad to be here. Glad to have you aboard. Now, time is tight, um, and uh, I, I was so... Uh, sort of struck by the content of your email and the life that you've had that I wanted to get you on uh, and uh, with a promise that we'll bring you back on when we have more time. But we've got about 40 minutes, so let's work as as much information as we can into this discussion. First, let's tell what what was your career in the world of, I guess, black ops, if I can call it that? Hmm. Well, let's see here. Uh, okay, first experience with the CIA guys was uh, helping Saddam Hussein. That was uh, that was a real baby steps type of thing. That was really deep deep stuff. But at the time, we had we really had no idea. Helping him how in his war against Iran or? Uh, yeah, he wanted. Uh, we were one of the things that we were working on trying to get him was Motorola radios. He wanted Motorola radios, and it was everything was 100 percent markup, so it was a big deal. And they had a big shopping list. And, uh, you know, it was, uh, you know, CIA guys were all behind this thing and all sorts of, uh, you know, other characters. But uh, it started getting hairy when they decided they wanted phased array radar systems because we knew this guy that worked at Hughes. And the FBI got involved and uh, CIA backed out. And, you know, that's, that was the end of that. But then it went on to... Uh, uh, it was actually an NSA gig, which we thought was CIA. I, I took it, and it was for building a whole bunch of lasers. And they were putting these lasers on uh, uh, weapons, you know, you know guns, uh, rocket launchers. Uh, and that's your background, them. right? That's your background. That's what we call massive optics? That has to well, do with no, lasers? Well, I was working before that. Ah. Before that, I was working in the electro-optics industry during the you know Reagan years, defense buildup, and made every... I worked on little pieces of glass that went in just about everything you can imagine. Uh, M1 tanks, uh, you know, gosh, even this stuff for the Israelis, you name it. Um, the rockets, uh, uh, ships, the, the missiles, uh, the helicopters, the jets, all of them, you know, they all have optics in them for everything, all the missiles, everything. And, uh, you know, that's what made uh, Desert Storm, Desert Storm, was all the optical systems and the lasers. And that's what I did, basically. You know, spy satellites, uh, 
Lawrence Thurmore Labs, big giant stuff, uh, you know, stuff like that. Um, so your your background is a, is an engineer. Uh, well, yeah, and, and manufacturing, you know, right. also. So how does how does someone go from you know being an engineer in manufacturing, um, working with optics? Uh, to becoming tangled up with, you know, Ollie North and these alphabet intelligence operations? Well, um, back in those days, lasers were kind of a new thing, I think. And uh, so right away, anybody that does anything with big lasers or, you know, looks like they're going to do something with lasers, uh, they want to keep an eye on them. And those, those were days we were really young, and we were, we were pioneers. You know, and I was a pioneer for many years. I'm, you know, I continued to be a pioneer. And... Uh, you know, and they they watch over that stuff, and then you know that's what I first that was my first inclination when they first came into the world. I thought that's what that was all about uh, was uh, you know when you uh, what really caught their eye was uh, we were talking about having a 300 watt uh, continuous beam argon laser and shining it up on the moon and drawing Budweiser or something and getting Budweiser to pay for it. They and they they kind of freaked out when we said that. So you, that, can can you can do that. You can do that. That's that's within your capability. Well, nowadays it doesn't seem like that much, uh, really. But uh, oh, I think it does. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, back then it was a big deal. Yeah, yeah. So, now uh, we, you know, we we hear so much it. about uh, places like uh, Area Fifty One. Did you have Did you have any connection with with Area Fifty One? <laughs> uh, well, at least a couple of times they tried to get me out there. Uh, one time specifically, uh, and uh, it was because of uh, some theories that I had developed about making, um, you know, beam ships and uh, the construction. And they had basically, they monitor everything. They had been monitoring me, apparently. And I, you know, silly me, I started talking to one of my people about uh, some of my theories about building beam ships. Next thing you know, I got these uh, the spooks, so to speak, Trying to trying to convince me that I need to go off to Area 51. So that was that was an incident. Definitely, they 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 started offering you a lot of money and what have you. And uh, but I had six kids, you know, family. I wasn't going to go anywhere. So you know that didn't work out. Well, tell us a little bit about these uh, these beam ships. What 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 were they? What did they look like? How did you see them being used? Well, I didn't see the beam ships being used. My theories were basically how they were being constructed, the materials that were being used, and uh, you know some of the propulsion theories and stuff like that. Well, what's that. the principle behind a beam ship? Uh, what does that mean, a beam ship? Well, you know, like it was the typical little flying saucer, you might say, you know, a Billy Meyer photo. Right, right. Yeah, okay. One of these things, they typically are silver, and so the key word here is silver. They were made out of silver primarily, and uh, with little little pieces of uh, uh, you know materials that would uh, act like semiconductors or whatever to uh, do whatever they wanted to do. But the thing about the silver is that it could be assembled in a very very uh, minute fashion, uh, microscopically, so to speak, um, beyond what we can do with computer chips. They could assemble an entire uh, structure uh, with all the sorts of uh, uh, capacity that we can only dream of. And you know propulsion capability in in uh, uh, extreme redundancy, so to speak. Well, what what was the propulsion system? What were you tapping into? Is anti gravitic? Is a zero point? What was it? Oh well, okay. And like I like I said, the there is there's multiple multiple ways to do it. But basically, there is a, uh, a magnetic field that allows it to float and move around and do that. But it also has a uh, 
an ion drive system, which is essentially a big giant laser. I think the whole ship is essentially a laser. They also have uh, other types of reactors. It may be like a fusion reactor that has that generates another type of propulsion. So it has uh, many ways of getting up to light speed, so to speak. Light speed. You could ach- this could achieve light speed. Well, yeah, they get up to light speed and then they uh, convert their energy into uh, or their matter into energy for a split second, a nanosecond, or whatever, and then they can essentially reappear in another place, in another time, whatever, and then they have to slow down from light speed. Is this theoretical or is this is this practical? Uh, well, this is what the uh, Palladians claim they can do, and uh, well, we get into yeah. I don't want I don't want to jump too far ahead. We will, we will talk about the Palladians, but right right back here on Earth right now, though, when when you're when you're well, most most uh, species uh, take a long time to ma- to uh, be able to do that, right. and I can't say that Earth humans have been able to master that particular technology. I can only vouch for the. Uh, other entities that are using these uh, beam ships to do that. But when you, when the idea came to you, beam ships here on Earth. Okay, but where did you get the idea? Although there are ships that are being constructed, but they're like, uh, if you can imagine, uh, sheet metal versus a semiconductor. It's a big difference. Right. We have primitive. Uh, but but where did you get the idea? Uh, uh, well, my first exposure to the uh, concept of the silver was from the Billy Meyer people, my exposure to the Billy Meyer people. Okay. All right. And, I don't know if you want to get to that, but they had, uh, uh, the material that they had had all sorts of uh, microscopic details that, to me, I felt were, uh, were what I would call uh, like kind of like a fiber optic, like a light pipe. It's like a hollow fiber optic. It's kind of like a capillary uh, tube that uh, channels light. And even from a standpoint of a uh, X-ray or a microwave, you could consider it a uh, channel for those too. And then they also have with this suspended all these ingredients, these little trace amounts of goodies that uh, were inside the silver. And you can imagine that these things were probably very much like a semiconductor okay. uh, device, or you know. We should we should uh, mention uh, you mentioned Billy Meyer. We should explain who he was. This is a. a, a a gentleman who lives in Switzerland, quite elderly now, and he claims to be a UFO contactee, and he's produced, or he is, he has, um, I guess, published thousands of uh, some pretty remarkable UFO photographs. Some, of course, believe they're hoaxes, and others say they're the real deal. Uh, why don't we then take a moment, uh, Stephen, and, and explain how you became involved uh, with, with Billy Meyer and his people? Okay, sure, no problem. Uh, when I had a, my falling out with the NSA people, I uh, went to hooked up with this guy that uh, worked for a company that made body armor. And uh, while I was uh, checking out the body armor and the factory and what have you, he started showing me Billy Meyer pictures and all the UFOs and all that. And uh, this began my indoctrination into that whole group. And it turned out this guy was working uh, in a security capacity for for uh, Britain Lee Elders, uh, Wendell Stevens, and uh, uh, the Welsh, the other guy. And uh, Explain who those people are, because people won't know. Well, these were people, essentially Americans, uh, who went to Switzerland to hook up with this Billy Meyer guy okay. and assist him with all of the information and what have you that he received and basically uh, help him to disseminate this information. And what was your first, uh, your first reaction when you were being approached by this guy and showing these photographs and so forth? I mean, were you a believer, a skeptic? Well, uh, I had never been exposed to any of this UFO stuff before, and I wasn't really interested per se. 
but I was really struck by how how real and lifelike these pictures were. And I looked at them, and I couldn't help but think that, wow, these things look really good. You know, uh, I'm wondering. So, so yeah. And then they started dumping information on me, basically, because, you know, I was informed that, yeah, yeah, we're working with this guy, you know, he's in Switzerland, this is so-and-so, this is so-and-so. And they started sending me all their videotapes and everything and getting me indoctrinated into the whole thing. And uh, I, I started to accept the Palladian thing a little bit, uh, but uh, the um, the rep when they started talking about reptiles, the reptilians, and, and these are various thing. species of, uh, or not species, civilized alien civilizations, the Palladians, the aliens, the more creepy aliens. Right. And then, then that was a little harder to digest, and I had to kind of file that away until many later years, to where I kind of revisited that that whole subject. But. Uh, but yeah, so it was a lot of information. But the main thing for me was the silver, because uh, uh, well, first of all, my association with these people—they they were interested in me. You know, it was just by chance per se. They they knew the guy that was doing the armor knew the, the people that I was just dealing with, the CIA people, which I thought were CIA. It was actually NSA, but he was selling them Kevlar, and they were using this Kevlar for uh, stealth boats and stealth this or that. They were building building stuff. And what did they anyway, want from you? Uh, what did they want from you, Stephen? <laughs> well, they wanted uh, they wanted me to give them technical advice on uh, everything that that they were dealing with, and uh, give them a little bit of insight from a from a technical perspective, uh, you know, scientific perspective. Whatever. In other words, in, uh, information on whatever they had, and uh, they also wanted me to help them with security because I was a very big weapons and advanced, you know, you know, weapon type person, and they wanted me to help them with that. Okay, hold on, Stephen. We'll take a time out, come back, and continue to delve into your remarkable story. <laughs> Stephen D. Kelly, engineer involved in the production of Black Ops Advanced Massive Optics Weaponry, talks about his journey from guns and lasers to metaphysics and spirituality and alien warfare, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Stephen D. Kelly is with us uh, talking about his life uh, that took him uh, from uh, an engineer involved in advanced weaponry, working under uh, uh, an NSA operation run by Ollie North. Eventually, that led him uh, to UFO contactee Billy Meyer. Uh, where Stephen began researching the properties of fine silver and the use of this material in the building of beam ships. Uh, Stephen, now, did you actually travel to Switzerland? Did you meet Billy Meyer? No, no, never never went over there. Had nothing to do with the man. Uh, strictly dealt with uh, Britain Lee Elders and uh, Wendell Ste- uh, the other guy, Wendell. Okay. And, uh, and, and Welch. what did they tell you specifically about the uh, the Pleiadians, uh, the the reptoids, the Greys? What, what, what sort of information did they first let you in on about these these? Uh, well, you know, basically everything they had to say, they had in print. You know, had written down. So I was just fed an endless list of stuff that they wanted me to read. You know, which was their their entire experience. I mean, that's what they were. They were. Uh, documenting the event and everything that Billy Meyer had to say, and that was what they were all about, was trying to get that that documentation out there in the public. And that's the other thing they wanted me to help them with was, was uh, you know, the distribution of that, which was really marketing. And they were actually, you know, they were trying to make a buck. And that was unfortunately kind of a, a negative uh, 
taste in my mouth, you know, I kind of kind of taints the message, you know, as soon as you start making, trying to make money off it. But uh, but at what point did you start to actually believe that what they were, what the information they were giving you might be, in fact, the truth? Well, uh, first of all, you know, I've seen the, uh, you know, the debunking information out there, so I'm not, you know, blind to the possibility that a lot of these little pictures could have been staged and this and that. But initially, I remember uh, the photo quality and the videos uh, were very good, and uh, it was very convincing. But what was really important for me, and, you know, a couple things, one thing in particular was the silver material. Because I was working with the silver, I was eventually going to do work with... uh, uh, heavy silver deposition processing, you know, for making jewelry and uh, electroforming processing using fine silver. And I was going to start consuming tons of this stuff, and I would eventually dip crystals in it, and they freaked out when I did that. And, uh, you know, it turns out silver is a big deal. They make the beam ships out of the silver. Uh, silver has laser qualities, you know, and I was in the laser business and in the military business, and they were freaking out, you know, because they thought, and, you know, and then I had connections with Billy Myers, so I had men in black visiting me and harassing my family and everything else. But, uh. But, but, but there, there must have been a, I mean, did you have any personal, um, any personal insight uh, that that led you to conclude that yes, the, there are there is a race of uh, ETs, Pleiadians, and there are Greys, and there are Reptoids, and they are interacting with the planet. Did you have any personal? Mm, other than the response of what's uh, happened as a result of all of this, uh, you know, the uh, the people that I'm dealing. With, I mean, it's like, for instance, as far as the ETs are concerned, there's also other issues involved, like the Satanism and what have you. You know, you don't have to see that to to know that it's there. And it, it kind of works the same way. The same way with the flying saucers. I don't have to walk inside one to know how it works and to be involved. I can, you know, I don't, that, I'm sort of exempt from that, you might say. I, uh, uh, the information I've been given in the fields that I'm in that all combine into uh, whatever it was that they needed to, uh, you know, to fr- further the uh, pursuits. Well, I mean, can you connect some dots for us? For example, um, you know, there's been much discussion in UFO circles in the disclosure movement that there has been interaction with uh, between government officials, intelligence officials, and various representatives of these ET civilizations, Pleiadians, Reptoids, Greys, what have you. And well, that, that's, that's okay. That, that, sure, that helps. Uh, all right. Naturally, uh, there is a uh, there's a very distinct power structure, and uh, you know humans and otherwise. And um, uh, after the the CIA and the NSA, of course, were came the Templars and the Bilderbergers. Okay. Now these guys are the cavers. They're the ones that live underground in the big uh, fortresses underground, and uh, they're they're uh, basically running everything. Now, yes, there are aliens, what have you, underneath these guys. Ultimately, these guys work for those guys. Uh, and, of course, there is the Illuminati is a very big part of everything. The, uh, those negative forces are a very big part of everything. And, uh, again, this is all very simple. And I'll just get this over with real quick. It's, you can divide the, there's two teams, essentially, the good guys and the bad guys, if you will. 
and one is the service to self, and the other is service to others. And that's the secret of the universe, uh, especially now. That's what this transition is: is we're going to have to choose sides, essentially. And those and those two sides right now are fighting a battle over us right now to figure out which side we're going to switch to at this big transition. Sounds like we are both the prize and the pawns in some sp- much, game yeah. of spiritual warfare. Stephen Kelly, hold on. We'll uh, return after this and uh, continue to delve into. Uh, this cavers. We'll find out more about these cavers, the Bilderbergs living underground. We'd prefer they were under a rock, perhaps. In any event, back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Stephen D. Kelly is with us, uh, talking about his experiences with uh, the Billy Meyer uh, Group Billy Meyer, of course, the contactee, UFO contactee living in Switzerland, uh, who has had contact with Pleiadians, and uh, the various sort of alphabet intelligence groups, NSA, CIA. It sounds, Stephen, like you were sort of being, uh, I, I mentioned, you know, we humans, the human race being the, the pawns and the prize in this game of spiritual warfare at the top of this power structure, I guess, are these, the various ET groups working under them uh, are, uh, call them the Illuminati or the Bilderbergs or what have you. So were they, were you being sort of pulled between these two worlds? Uh, Were they vying? Oh yeah, most definitely. Um, The recruitment, the guys that were doing the recruiting were the the bad guys, so to speak, and I guess you could say the uh, Billy Meyer people were the good guys for all intents and purposes. I suppose that was their purpose, was to get this information to me, perhaps, ultimately. Who knows? So Meyer and his group had uh, had been aligned with... Uh, well, yeah, the Palladians, um, they, their whole thing is to not interfere and to not talk to anybody and to leave us alone. <clears throat> so the whole deal with them talking to Billy Meyer was, was uh, uh, you know, break of, from protocol. And... Uh, that's the thing. You know, the other guys get all the PR because they don't have these rules, these non-intervention rules. The reptoids and the greys, and they're the ones uh, ostensibly that would be would be conducting the, the, ab- the abductions yes, yes. the abductions and so forth? Yeah, uh, yeah. obviously abductions is certainly uh, a sign that they're messing with you and not uh, leaving you alone. And, and the reptoids and the greys, they have some sort of a pact, an agreement with the Bilderbergs? Uh, well, most definitely the shadow government, the guys in charge uh, have a... Well, the government, of course, has a treaty with the little gray guys, but the uh, the reptoid presence, per se, has always been here. It's been here for a long time, much longer than we have been here. Uh, you know, there's not a lot of them. There are not as many of them as there are us, of course, but uh, they've always been here. So let me see if I understand uh, the, the, the motives, then, of these various ET groups, is, and, and you can sort of jump in as, as best you understand it. The, the Palladians contacted Billy Meyer's group. They see him perhaps as a conduit. They want Billy Meyer, they, they want to use him as a conduit to get out, uh, what, free, free energy, uh, advanced technology that would benefit mankind, whereas the Greys and the Reptoids uh, in league with the Bilderbergs are basically here to, uh, well, they look at li- us like cattle. They're here to, to oh, harvest. Yeah. <laughs> very, very accurate, yes. 
And what is the nature? Accurate. So then, what is the nature of this this pact with uh, the the reptoids, the greys, and uh, the Bilderbergs that uh, they get they get to harvest us as the and, and and manipulate our gene pool as they see fit? Uh, what do, what do the Bilderbergs get out of the deal? Well, um, <clears throat> excuse me. The uh, the first thing is is that the uh, the service to self types, especially the ones of the advanced density levels, the higher up levels of, in the alien races, actually have genetic issues mainly associated with their choice to be service to self. They resort, they revert back to a uh, more primitive form, you know, like the r- lizard people would go from something that was like a very human-looking lizard person to a very lizard-looking lizard person, and they're trying to fight that battle. Uh, that's that's one of the big issues with the... Uh, these things, and what do the Bilderbergs get out of it? Well, the uh, they are the slave masters. We are we are the cattle. They are the cattle managers. They basically get to rule the earth, and they get to uh, obviously the first thing that they promise them is that they'll be protected uh, from this great calamity, whatever it is that's supposedly coming here shortly. And they build their underground cities. They siphon off all the money for that. They have their collaboration. They use futuristic technology, Tesla technology. They obviously have a fleet of uh, UFOs that they've acquired through the treaty. Uh, things like that. So they and, they uh, are they they would then, as Richard uh, historian UFO historian Richard Dolan has pointed out, they do in fact the Bilderbergs that is because of their access to this advanced technology, they essentially constitute a, a different civilization here on Earth. Uh, well, they do consider themselves gods amongst men, uh, for sure. And they also think of themselves as the great conservationists. They think they are the ultimate in conservationists. They'd like to go underground, and we are this cancer on the surface. They'd like to see it wiped off so that the surface can become wild, and they can live underground in their palaces underground and come up and visit, take little vacations on the surface. That's what they'd like to see. Did you ever visit any of these underground bases? Uh, well, you know, obviously I had one very close to me that these people were dealing out of, that I was dealing with, and that's a big deal, uh, you know, as far as the information that I'm disclosing. Uh, but I promised to wait until the conference before I talked about that. Okay, let's let, let's give that a plug. That's in uh, Los Angeles. It's the Alchemy event. Yeah, I actually switched it to Irvine. Okay. This is the alchemy event, right? All right. Tell, give us some details for those uh, who may be listening online. Well, out the there. best thing to do, of course, is go to uh, www.alchemyevent.com, uh, and that's a l c h e m y event.com, and uh, all the information will be there, ticket prices, and where the location is. But they moved it out to Orange County, which is nice for me uh, because the traffic is a heck of a lot better, and everything's going to be cheaper. And sure. So, so you're going to be divulging uh, a lot more of this type of information, but while we have you on the line here, what can you tell us about this weapon that you were supposed to develop that would have been used to fight the aliens? Oh, well, um, well, back in those days, uh, that was the Clinton administration, and uh, I you know, thought about different combinations of uh, technology and uh, spirituality and what have you. I was trying to come up with something, some concept, and I realized that the human brain ultimately was going to be more powerful and have more... Uh, the psychic thing was the big deal, uh, because anything that we could make would be uh, overcome by a superior uh, civilization. And ultimately, I would find out that that was truly the case. When I was dealing with these Bilderberger people, one of the first things you find out, and one of the reasons why they think they're so much better than everybody else, 
is because they're very into the psychic uh, ability and they use it and they evaluate people with it. They use it to protect themselves. They use it to control people around them. Uh, they use it to see into the future. They use it to see what people are doing, the spy on people. It's, it's a big part of what they do. And, and that's because they know something that we don't, and they don't want us to know that. Uh, developing that psychic skill is a big deal, very, very important if you want to be a player. And, but who was asking you to produce this weapon, and, and which ET civilization would it have been used against? Uh, well, they didn't say who they were going to use it against. They, what they said was, uh, basically at this point, uh, when they came up with this um, proposal, <clears throat> I was kind of um, apprehensive, okay, because they had just shot down uh, Flight 800, and I thought, okay, these guys are, you know, these guys are satanic. I don't want to have anything to do with them. And they they said, uh, look, we're not Republicans, we're not Democrats, we're just Earth humans, and, and we're trying to protect the Earth, and we should, we all need to stick together, da-da-da, and this kind of thing. So I said, sure, I'll do it one more time, but don't shoot down any more airplanes. And that's when I started working on this pro- this thing. Well, ultimately, yeah, they shot out another airplane. It was Flight 990. And that's when I said, you know, forget it. I'm not going to... Well, you mentioned TWA-800, which was uh, um, went down off the coast of uh, of uh, New York, yeah. Long Island. Now, 990, remind us... Uh, well, 990 was an Egyptian air, uh, similar circumstances, general vicinity of Long Island, very close. Long Island is, is where the East Coast Star Wars is, right there on Montauk Point. So that's like a sitting duck. I mean, anything that flies anywhere near Montauk Point is a sitting duck. Well, of course, there were many, many witnesses uh, who, who, who said that there was definitely some sort of a ground-to-air missile used to bring that plane down. Those people were never really... Uh... Well, the thing about the, uh, the way they bring down a thing like that is they never use one thing, okay? They, they used, I mean, I'll, let me put it this way. They could have had a bomb on board the plane. They could have used an uh, energy beam weapon. They could have used a missile. Uh, they could have used all sorts of things. But uh, they tend to use them all at once, and that way they'll get us uh, arguing about which one they use because we'll find evidence of all these things, and we'll, and we'll spend all our time arguing about which one, and we'll never focus at the fact that, they yes, they used them all. So they, as far as you, you, you know, they, they did use some sort of energy beam weapon based in Montauk to bring down TW-800. What was it, just an experiment to see if they could do it? No, I think that they've been using this thing for other other things. The biggest uses I can think of them to date are probably 800, 990, and JFK Jr. Besides that, I don't know if they've shot down. I mean, they, they may use it against uh, satellites and that sort of thing. We wouldn't know. So for espionage, uh, political uh, assassinations? Well, let me put it this way. They've had uh, high-energy lasers and that sort of thing since Jimmy Carter, at least. Okay, I can tell you that for sure. And uh, the Russians and the Americans were both shooting down satellites with big lasers. And the Russians were really big into X-ray lasers, which is uh, an atomic process. And, and we now have these X-ray lasers, too, but we do them out in space. We don't do them here on Earth because they're like little tiny elect, uh, atomic explosions. But uh, the big thing is uh, scalar weapons. And both the U.S. and the uh, Russia use scalar weapons, and a lot of time people confuse scalar weapons with HARP, which is its own thing. Right, right. Do you think scalar weapons were used to create Hurricane Sandy? Uh, I definitely think that scalar weapons are used in in hurricane situations. In in Sandy, I'm not. I'm more thinking that HARP was used for the purposes of steering it because of the nature of the hurricane, versus Katrina 
where you could see definite geometric patterns that you would associate with a uh, uh, two waves of harp converging and creating a zone. You know, they make like a keystone-shaped zone when these two waves converge. And you could definitely see that in the satellite maps of Katrina. So, and, and so I have noticed, you know, they, they, I think they probably use these things in conjunction. You know, who knows? Uh, I think they use harp uh, for steering the hurricane. And uh, it could also be used for applying pressure because harp, harp does apply pressure. But harp is also, uh, he does uh, heating, you know. So, right, right. Yeah. So, um, again, let me just go back to TWA 800 here, and we're just in the, the, the dying moments of the program, but what would have been the, the purpose of shooting that plane down? Oh, gosh. Uh, you know, I don't remember what the exact reason for that particular thing, but usually whenever they do something like this, what it, what it coincides with some sort of celestial event that's taking place almost every time. There's some sort of uh, astronomical thing taking place that coincides to some sacrifice that they're making. It's it's this is the satanic thing. And the 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 uh, the, the shuttle disaster was that also? Shuttle uh, disaster over California. That was the West Coast Star Wars. That was probably China Lake, California. That's West Coast Star Wars. Uh, you know, <laughs> so uh, it's almost the same thing practically. So your purpose in coming forward, Stephen, is to alert the public that this is what's going on. This is we are living on a in a prison planet. We've got these powerful humans in in concert with these advanced ET races? Well, um, first of all, uh, what I say to you on the radio and what I say at the conference are probably two different things, but ultimately I want people to understand that, uh, yes, I've got, yes, all these things are true. There's the most wildest scenarios you can imagine are going on, and, and uh, as far as what's coming, I'd like to think positive, and I'd like to manifest the best things positive, although you have to be ready for almost anything. And this way, it's, you spread the fear out, so when it does come, you don't freak out and go into a fetal position. That's, that's very important. But uh, at the same time, I want to tell people that this whole business with service to self and service to others, that's the number one rule in the universe. That's the whole secret of the universe. You want to choose which side you want to be on. You want to be at least 51% service to others. At least. Okay, Stephen, uh, people can uh, hear more from you at the uh, the Alchemy event in Irvine, California. And uh, I'll put a link on uh, on my site, richardserrett.com, the links to that site. People can find out how to, uh, how to attend. Thank you for this. Stephen Kelly. We'll, uh, we'll do more uh, with him in the future. Thanks, Tim Spreen. Back next week with a brand new program. Hope you'll be along for the ride, and it's always a ride, isn't it? In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed, nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light, what I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.